The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we join with that. That heavenly host. We lift our voices with that angel chorus from above as we sing glory to God in the highest. You literally created us for this. To magnify your name. To give expression to the glory and the beauty and the majesty that is uniquely and singularly yours. Father, we have seen it most of all, most glaringly, most beautifully in the glory of your grace and the sending of your son to save sinners. So Father, we gather today to remember that Christ Jesus did not remain a babe in a manger that he fulfilled all righteousness, doing every last thing that love and law commands, doing what the first Adam failed to do, that he might lift us up, not only bringing peace between us and you, but winning for us a place as your sons and your daughters. We stand as a people overwhelmed by that grace, that mercy, and that goodness. We ask, Father, as we come to your word today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to behold what you have revealed to us here in the story of the coming of Christ. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd ask you to stand to your feet, please, one more time. A reverence to the reading of God's word. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, Sufficient, authoritative word of God can only be received by the power of his spirit. And we ask him to enable us to do that now. I read you in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of, thir- a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also. So the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And all God's people said, Amen. May the Spirit of God come upon us to enable us to receive his word, to enlighten our hearts, to allow us to see him as he's revealed himself here. So as I woke up this morning and went through my normal Lord's Day routine, preparing to come in, there was something particularly weighty and special and right. It occurred to me this morning that far too often what happens is we get through the preliminaries. That's where we get through Christmas Eve so we can get to the real Christmas. Family and friends and feasts. And I think this needs to be our pattern is what I'm telling you from now on. We're gathering on Christmas Day, whether it's the Lord's Day or not. But we've walked together as a church family through this through this story, somewhat chronologically, following Luke's narrative. Well, technically that's not true, is it? We began in eternity past asking, who is this word who became flesh? And we moved from eternity past to the Garden of Eden in the fall. The rebellion of man. Why was it necessary for this word to become flesh? And then we talked about what does it mean for the word to become flesh in this self-emptying taking on himself the fullness of humanity. And then we we spoke together last week about how in the world is God going to do such a thing? And I still haven't found a sufficient answer to that. But in some miraculous way, these two natures uniting perfectly in one person, fully God and fully man. And I don't know about you, but my head is spinning and my heart is reeling and I don't really know where where to fix my attention just incomprehensible. But I can't imagine what Mary and Joseph must have been thinking by this point in the story. You, you got angels, you got Gabriel showing up and speaking to, well, to Zachariah. And you hear news of that reaching the ears of Mary when she goes to visit Elizabeth. And you, also, of course, you've, you've got the angel Gabriel coming and speaking to Mary. You've got an angel coming to Joseph in a dream, you, you got the birth out of town in Bethlehem. You give birth to this baby. And then, of course, you've got the shepherds showing up, telling them about all that they had seen and heard from this throng of heavenly angels. And I've walked through enough 
deliveries and, and, and labor and bringing a baby home, both with my own three daughters and with many of you, I know that there's this desire in your heart just to get back to normal life. I'm ready to get out of the hospital and get back home and just find some sense of normalcy. How much more so for this young girl and her husband? Good, let's, let's make the 70-mile journey back home to Nazareth and get to raising this kid, get back to a normal life. They had to be thinking to themselves, what's next? Like, what do you do next? I've just given birth to the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And everywhere we go, angels keep popping up. So what do you do next? I'll tell you what they did next. They searched the word of God and said, what's the next right thing? What's the next right thing to do? Well, according to the law, the next right thing was to offer a sacrifice, deliver an offering. It seems to me that Luke is determined to make clear to us that these were these were godly and pious people. Just because they had been chosen by God, just because God's favor had fallen upon Mary, just because Joseph was found to be a righteous man, did not exclude them from following through with the word of God. What did he say? And we find here three times in these first few verses, verse 22, 23, and 24, according to the law of Moses, as it is written in the law of God, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. What's the next right thing according to the word of God that we will do? As I said, the next right thing was for her purification. That's according to Leviticus 12. What happened was, this was a reminder, as you read through the holiness code and all the laws that God set out for his people and all the ways that his people could become unclean. There's many of these you look at and you go, but they didn't do anything wrong. A woman just had her period or a man just developed a boil or a woman gave birth to a child, how is this a thing that requires purification? And these are all just reminders that we are swimming in a world of sin. We're surrounded by it in our very fallen nature. And so one of the things that would happen is after a woman would give birth, if it was a boy, for seven days, she would be unclean. Then on the eighth day, she was required then to bring that boy for circumcision. At that point, he would have been named. Of course, the name given to him was not chosen by the mother or the father, but by God. Delivered through an angel, his name will be Jesus. For he will save man from his sin. Now, they could have headed back to Jerusalem, back to Nazareth, excuse me. There was no requirement that every single mother that gives birth bring her child all the way to the temple in Jerusalem. But surely Mary needed some time to recover, to regain her strength, just gather herself a little bit. And so they thought, look, we're not far from Jerusalem. Let's go there. Clearly there's something special happening with this child and we're going to take him to the temple. And so after the, after the circumcision on the eighth day, they were to continue. The scripture says for another 33 days, she was to continue in her purification. So now we're at day 40. And on day 40 then, the law demanded that they would then go and present before God an offering. A lamb is a burnt offering and then a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But God had made provision because he knew that many of his people would not be able to afford even a lamb. And so for the poor, they could offer instead of a lamb and a turtle dove, two turtle doves. We're told that that's exactly what Mary and Joseph did. 
I don't know for sure that this means that they were poor. Maybe they just couldn't travel with a lamb. But more than likely, I think God's revealing to us that this really was a poor couple. That truly, for our sake, he was rich, became poor. Now, there's, there's another thing going on here. This wasn't just for the purification of Mary. Because you'll see here that it says that she presented him to the Lord. This points us back to the Exodus. To God's powerful hand in redeeming his people out of slavery. You'll remember that on that night when the angel passed through the land, that the firstborn of all Egypt would die. And yet because of the Passover lamb, because of God's favor and his mercy, he had spared the firstborn of all Israel. Therefore, all the firstborn. What does he say here? Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. You belong to me. And therefore, there was a ransom price that was due. There was a price of redemption. It was five shekels of silver, which must be given to the Lord. And so we see these two things as commanded by the law being carried out at one time by this couple. They were going to do everything that the law demanded. Truly, Jesus was a Jew from birth. Romans 8.3 says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. As he would say to John the Baptist there when he tells him, no, you will baptize me. This is what is right to fulfill all righteousness. We see even as an infant, even when it, was appear, it would appear as though this one is not calling the shots. We find him fulfilling all righteousness, all that the law of God demands, all that Adam should have been, even from his birth. This is playing out in the life of Jesus. Now, lest we think he's completely passive in this, you must remember that he is Lord. We talked about this last night. The whole reason these people were in Bethlehem was because there was a decree from Caesar Augustus. And God laughs. Because this child who was yet still within his mother's womb as she made that journey to the south, within him was God, the Lord. He was the one who had made the eternal decree. He was the one who was ordaining and predestining and controlling all that happened that led him even to this, even to this place. So we see through his birth that he is fulfilling all righteousness. Then coming into the temple, we meet two great Old Testament saints. Really the picture of what an Old Testament saint is meant to look like. In verse 23, we read, read about a man named Simeon. It says that the man was righteous and devout. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no not one. He tells us that through the keeping of the law, no man will be justified. And yet often throughout scripture, we hear about God calling men righteous. What does this mean? Is God somehow now grading on a scale? Is he saying, well, they're all a sorry lot, but this is the best I've got. We know that if there was any righteousness in Simeon, it was being accomplished by the baby that was there in the temple at that moment. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That what Jesus was doing, even as an infant, in his circumcision, in his being brought and presented before the Lord in the temple, in his baptism, in his walking in the fulfillment of every jot, every tittle, every ounce of the law of God. He was fulfilling a righteousness which would be imputed to this man called Simeon so that God could call him righteous. 
There was evidence of this in the fact that they also call him devout. That he was a keeper of the law. That this was a man that, while not perfectly, he would do everything as best he was able that the law demanded. That he would offer sacrifices for his sin. That he would trust in the promises of God. That he would be a worshiper, a God-fearer. One who believed in the promises of God. We're introduced to another woman there, a woman called Anna. Now, depending on how you understand this text, she was either 84 years old or perhaps there's another rendering that tells us maybe she was a widow for 84 years. So she may have been anywhere from 84 years up through 104 years old. Either way, this is an old woman. It tells us very clearly. Now, Simeon, we don't know about the age of this man. It seems as though he's old as the story goes on. We'll see. It seems as though probably he was advanced in years. But for sure, we know that this lady, Anna, that she was old. In addition to this, it says that she was a prophetess. Now, we don't read any uh, prophecies of Anna anywhere else in Scripture. There's not a minor prophet book called Anna. Perhaps all that God is saying here is that having come into contact with the Christ, she will now speak a word of truth to the people. In addition to this, it says that she did not, verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She too was devout. She would not depart from this place because these were righteous and devout and faithful Old Testament saints. And yet, what we will find in them is a holy dissatisfaction. Not that they were dissatisfied with God. Not that they found the law to somehow be lacking, but because they knew that there was more. They didn't just believe the law. They believed the prophets. They didn't just believe the commandments and the ordinances. They believed the promises of God. And they knew that those things had not yet fully been fulfilled. Again, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to Genesis 3.15. They knew that from woman would come one that would stomp the head of the serpent. And yet they continued to see the serpent at work. They knew the story of Noah and how when his mother gave birth to him, she gave him a name which meant rest and comfort. I have to imagine that what happened here was Noah's parents anticipated that maybe this would be the child. Maybe this would be the offspring of woman that would finally bring peace and rest and comfort to the world. And we know that he failed. They knew about after this that God had made promises to a man called Abraham. That through him, he would bless all the nations of the earth. And yet, they still saw the nations of the earth separated from God. They had known the time of the judges when the people, everyone would do what seemed right in their own eyes. And God would sell them, therefore, over in the hands of a pagan king. Until they would cry out and in mercy, he would raise up a judge. Only for them to fall right back in sin. So much so that that book ends in saying, and there was no king in Israel. And in those days, everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. They would have known that finally God did raise up for them a king, even a king like King David. And yet they knew about King David's failures and they knew that there was a promise of an eternal kingdom, a a kingdom whose dominion would never end. And yet they knew that David died and they knew after him came a long string of sorry kings, unfaithful kings, kings that did not uphold the law of God. And now here they were in the middle of 400 years of silence. In slavery to Rome, Satan on the loose, surely feeling beaten down and discomforted and exhausted. As I was reading through this text this morning, I couldn't help. C.S. Lewis has been on my mind a lot 
these days, particularly the Chronicles of Narnia. I wanted to watch it last night. My girls wouldn't let me. <laughs> but I thought about the words of Mr. Tum- Tumnus, the fawn, who said that there in Narnia, because of the white witch, it was always winter and never Christmas. This has to be the experience of these people. We never find the true freedom that we long for. We've got this law, but it doesn't seem to get us all the way to God. Instead, it just shows us how broken and busted we are. It shows us that if salvation is going to come, it's got to come from somewhere outside of us. So we see these two Old Testament saints, they seem to be looking for Christmas. They seem to be looking beyond the shadows and the signs and the pointers, beyond the priests, beyond the sacrifices, beyond the temple to the one that it points towards. They seem to be waiting. As I said, they have a holy dissatisfaction. They're watching and they're waiting. They're staying alert for this one who has been promised. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. A consolation, that word just means comfort or encouragement. We see the same word in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Comforted in times of affliction. Isn't that what we long for? Not necessarily one that will take us out of the affliction, not someone that will remove us from the suffering, but someone that will come to us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our sorrow and say, I am here and I care. I meet you here each day with the mercies that are new. You come to my throne for a well-timed help in time of need. This is what people long for. The people of Israel had been longing for it and God had been promising it. The prophet Isaiah, verse 40, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Don't you want God to lean down and speak a word of comfort and tenderness to you in your suffering? In your pain? And in the futility of trying to make your way back to him? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. This is the thing that God had promised. And so this man, he was awaiting the consolation of Israel. And Anna, we read in verse 38, that she, it seems, along with others, were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, you know what redemption means. How many weeks did we spend unpacking just that word in this letter to the Ephesians? Ephesians 1, 7, that in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. That means to pay a ransom to secure the freedom, the release of a prisoner. We know that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. We know that we ourselves are slaves to sin and Satan and death. And so you've got these two Old Testament saints and they're looking forward to something more, to the consolation, to the comfort, to the encouragement, to the peace that only God can offer and the freedom. You see how those two things come together. They come together in the text that David read for us earlier. That true comfort and consolation, it comes not in removing us from the sufferings and the trial, but in a promise of redemption. In a promise that I have been redeemed, I am being redeemed, and I will be redeemed. 
But the question isn't. We shouldn't be so much surprised that we see this man and this woman, these Old Testament saints there, trusting and waiting and watching for the consolation and the redemption of Israel. The, the, the more surprising thing is, why aren't all the Jews there? Why isn't everyone there waiting for the Christ to come? Well, I believe that there are two equal, equally damning misconceptions that come upon man when they consider something like this. Number one, complete contentment with the world the way that it is. People that fall for the lie that this world is right this place is meant to be heaven they're completely content with the way that things are they don't they don't find this holy discontentment this dissatisfaction they don't look within themselves and the world around them and the brokenness and the lostness and the sin and the death and they don't look and say that's not the way it's meant to be but but then number two It's a misunderstanding of what the real problem is. Zechariah, there's there's just a lot of great, great infant songs that come in in this, these first two chapters of Luke. Everybody's, it was almost a musical. It turned into a musical. Can I say that? Everybody would start singing every time something exciting would, would happen. And I mean, sometimes it doesn't say they're singing, but in my head, they're singing. But, but Zechariah, you'll remember that he, he starts just prophesying in, in the spirit and, and speaking about the blessedness that is coming because of this, this child that is within his wife's womb is going to be the forerunner, the, the front runner for the Lord. And he starts speaking about things like the horn of salvation and he's coming to save us from our enemies and he's going to release us from the hand of those that hate us. And when he says those kind of things, all of Israel is willing to shout yes and amen. Set us free from those filthy Romans. We're surrounded by filth and by darkness. Isn't God lucky he has a light like us in the world? And so when will he come and destroy our enemies? When will he come and lay low these pagan armies? When will he set us free from our captives? They would all shouted yes and amen. But then you get to verse 76 in Luke 1. It says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's where salvation comes in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, the true problem wasn't out there. The true problem wasn't the Romans. The true problem wasn't some pagan kings. The true problem wasn't the outsiders. The true problem wasn't the irreligious people. The true problem was them. That They were those who walked in darkness. They were those who needed peace with God. They were those who needed salvation from their sins. And so what we see in this man, Simeon and Anna, are not that they had heard and believed the covenants of God, But they had actually embraced the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant that what was needed was a new heart. The law of God, not inscribed on stone, but upon their heart. The ability to keep that law, 
A heart that is drawn to God, a heart of stone that is removed and a heart of flesh that is given in its place. They knew that they needed complete transformation, that that's what was needed, that that's what God ultimately promised, that that's where salvation came. So verse 26 tells us that God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. People debate sometimes whether it would be good to know the day that you're going to die. Like if your uh, birth certificate had an expiration date on it or something like this. And generally speaking, of course, the answer is no, you would be just a mess. But this man knew. He knew that within his lifetime, the snow would begin to melt. Winter would begin to pass away and Christmas would come. That he would behold this one, this Christ, the one in whom all the promises of God find their true yes And amen. And that means that he lives in a very peculiar time, a time when the old age is passing away and the age to come has dawned. With the inauguration of the kingdom of God, because the king was coming, you understand that he stood in the temple where lambs were still sacrificed, but the true lamb of God was there in the arms of his mother. He stood in the temple where God said he would meet with his people while the true temple was there in the arms of his father. What a strange time, the Old Testament and the New Testament overlapping in the lifetime of these two people. And yet it seems as though only they saw it. Nobody else seemed to recognize what was happening here, that all the promises of the Old Testament after finally 400 years of silence, they were coming true in a baby of all things. So we see these two that are able to see beyond it, beyond the shadows, the signs, the the pointers and to the substance. And so it says that every day these people were there. And I, and I can imagine every town has that. I'm trying to be delicate with my word. Now, I said a word I shouldn't have said earlier. Every town has that one guy that's a little off. And everybody knows about him. He's kind of a uh, he's kind of a pillar in the community, right? Like that, that one kind of crazy guy that's just always out there talking about God knows what. I can't help but wonder if Simeon wasn't that guy in the temple. Who is this old man that he's always running around talking about the consolation, the comfort of Israel? Shut up, man. Give it a break. I have to imagine even the religious people, even, even the priests at times got a little tired of hearing this story that this guy was telling that there was more to come. That salvation was needed. That comfort and encouragement was yet to come from God. And Anna was there. It says every day that Anna was there looking for the redemption of Israel. It, it reminds me of, you know, Anna is, is another translation of the word of the name uh, Hannah. And so it reminds me of, of Hannah. She was she was there and she was crying out so fervently to the to the Lord. And, and she's praying and it says she's moving her lips, but no sound is coming out. And so what does Eli say? Eli says, Put away your wine, woman. How long will you go around drunk? I wonder how many people thought that Simeon and Anna were drunks. They were crazies that they had missed the mark. And now all of a sudden, in the temple, he appears. Verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up into his arms and he blessed him. I always, I used to always assume that Simeon was a priest because these people handed 
him their baby, but it doesn't say it. He was just a dude. This is just a stranger, just an old man. And I don't know whether Mary and Joseph, like, did he go to everybody that brought a child and ask them, tell me your story? Did they tell him some of the things that they had witnessed and they tell him what Gabriel had had told her? Or did he literally just see the baby? I made very clear to you, Jesus didn't have a halo and he didn't glow. But he goes up to this couple and he says, can I please hold your baby? Maybe it's just because he was an old man and didn't seem all that threatening, but they handed him to him. And the text doesn't say this, but I have to imagine that he leaned down and he kissed the face of God. He held God in his arms. He said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This one is a light of revelation to the world. And this man wasn't caught off guard by this. So many Jews took offense at the idea that Yahweh would be God of the world. He didn't understand his promises and he doesn't even flinch at this. That those who are without hope and without God in the world, that this one had come to them. That they may no longer walk in darkness. He was the glory to the people of Israel. That same glory that went with them in the wilderness. That same glory that descended upon the temple. The full weight and majesty and worth and beauty of all that God is. Do you understand this man held it in his arms? Truly, in this man's arms was something, what did Lucy say, bigger than all the world? And he calls Lord, it's a particular word. He doesn't use the word kurios here for Lord. Kurios is, is the Greek translation of what you find Yahweh in, in the Old Testament. He doesn't use that. He uses the word despotes. It, it means something more like sovereign or master. It, it's almost as if God had given this man a commandment and said, you're the watchman. Your duty is to be alert and sober and on guard the coming consolation of Israel. And he looks at him and he says, Master, Lord, may I now go to sleep? Now do you give me permission to die? This, this, they, they give fancy Latin names to all these songs, right? And Nunc Dimittis is the word that's now let me depart. Master, now would you let me depart? 
You have proven faithful and you have proven true and you have proven to be a keeper of all promises and you have let me behold the salvation of the world. Beloved, once you have grasped this, it doesn't matter whether you're 34 or 104. You don't fear death. If you haven't, it doesn't matter whether you're 34 or 104, you will be terrified. He knew that there was nothing this world had to offer. There's, there's nothing this world had to offer that could compare to this child that he now held in his arms. And he hadn't seen any angels and he hadn't seen any miracles and he hadn't heard any teaching and he hadn't watched him crucified and raised again. None of this. One simple glimpse at this ordinary looking baby and he knew. And hundreds of other people, they were there, they had seen this baby and they thought absolutely nothing of it. And Anna too, by God's hand, she was there at that exact moment. I don't, did Simeon and Anna know each other? And he shouts to Anna, he grabs her by the shoulders and he says, he's here? Or did she come to her own recognition? But it says that coming up at that very hour, verse 38, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. So apparently there was at least some others there that she had convinced or they had come to this conclusion on their own by searching the scriptures. They knew Redemption is needed here. And so she starts to rejoice with all of them and they're celebrating. And you've got to imagine there were other religious people there telling them, hold it down. We're trying to do church here. Don't you understand? You're bothering the worshipers. But how could they be so sure? Even if Mary and Joseph told them the story, let's assume that, okay? As conservative as possible, let's assume that Mary and Joseph showed up. Let's assume the shepherds came with Mary and Joseph. It couldn't happen. They were unclean. They couldn't come in. Let's just assume, right? The shepherds are there and Mary and Joseph are there. Let's assume Gabriel shows up. How could they know for sure? So willing that he says, Master, now can I depart? I'm willing to die. I'm willing to depart this earth today because I'm so certain that this is the one. How? I want you to take note. Just flip over a page in your Bible to chapter 1 of Luke. In which I want you to take note of all the times that the Holy Spirit is active. You see, I, I think that you, you'll, you'll hear this question from time to time. and It's a very, very thoughtful question that most Thoughtful Bible readers, most thoughtful Christians come to. How, how were Old Testament saints saved if Jesus had not yet come? We say they were saved the same way, looking forward to Christ. We look backwards to Christ. They looked forward to Christ. They just believed the promises of God and Christ's righteousness was credited to them. He paid for their sins all the same ways that we are saved. They were saved. Then a next very, very thoughtful question was, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus was saying, I must depart that I can send my spirit. So does that mean that the Holy Spirit was maybe there in the acts of creation, but he didn't really do anything in the lives of the Old Testament saints? 
Now, I don't have time to fully unpack that this morning. I'm just planning that. See, I would commend it to you. If you never thought this through, studied the scriptures on your own, I would encourage you to, to really consider this some and ask God what he has to say on this. But I will tell you that um, there's incredible continuity between the way the Holy Spirit works in the lives of the Old Testament saints and the way that he works in ours. Jesus, I remind you, looked at the man called Nicodemus and said, unless you are born again, that is born of the Spirit, you will not even see the kingdom of God. Old Testament saints, too, needed regeneration by the power of the Spirit. And I ask you to see all the ways that the Spirit of God was at work. Luke 1.15 says that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Luke 1.41, John leaps and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.67 says that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and began prophesying. And then move forward to this morning's text, Luke 2.25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. When the parents bring Jesus into the Holy Spirit, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. This man knew the word of God. Clearly, he knew the word and the promises of God. But what does it take to ignite a fire within his soul? What does it take to give him eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe? It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And we remember that there's other people that had seen much, much more and they would not believe. He looks at a child and he believes so much he's ready to die. Time is short, so I won't read through the entire text. But we get to the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. Christ has risen. And you remember that there are these men walking along the road, the Emmaus Road, and they're lamenting and they're mourning and they're sorrowful. And Jesus just suddenly comes alongside them and he asks them, you know, what, what's going on? They said, don't you know about the things that have happened? And he says, well, what, what things? And they say, well, there was this one who had come, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was a prophet. He was mighty in deed and in word. They knew that he was mighty. They had seen and heard of miracles and believed that they were true. And they had heard his teaching. They knew that he was a teacher, a man who had come from God. Before God and before all people and our chief priests and the rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Simeon sees a baby and knows redemption has come. These men see Christ Jesus and his miracles and his teaching and his crucifixion. And because he was three days in the grave, they thought, well, then all hope is lost. We thought maybe the redemption had come, but clearly we were wrong. And they have, they have no clue. So Jesus looks at him and he says, isn't this what the Bible said? Didn't it have to happen this way? And then he interprets for him all the scriptures. So you've not only heard the miracles of Christ, you've not only heard the teaching of Christ, you've now got the exposition of Christ. That's why I don't blame myself when you people don't get it. Because Christ can take the words of a donkey or... The crying out of stones or a broken dude like me and by his spirit, he can give you enlightenment. But at the same time, apart from his working, Christ Jesus could stand here and expose the scriptures to you. And you still wouldn't understand. They still didn't get it. 
But verse 30, they invite him to come in. This is, again, at the end of Luke's gospel. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he was opening the scriptures? That's what the Holy Spirit does, beloved. Do you understand? He opens your eyes and your heart burns within you. That you can hold a precious baby in your arms and say, Master, now may I depart. But we see these two old people in the temple and they have got the best eyesight. Isn't there something ironic about this? Everyone else is blind and the two old people, they see clearer than anyone around with unveiled faces. They behold the glory of the Lord. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, that is about Jesus. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In parentheses here, it says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary, a sword will pierce through your soul. I've fallen in love with Mary this Advent season. I've always had an honor and an appreciation for Mary, but as we have really walked through and considered all the favor and the blessing that fell upon her and considered, Consider the way that she responded to this. Again, we're talking about a 12, 13, 14-year-old little girl. And I know they were different back then, but there's some things that are very much the same. But with this incredible blessing came heartbreak like you could never imagine. I want you to think about the rejection that she watched her son endure and the pain and the beating. Even think about when she and... The, the brothers, they, they came out to try and call Jesus home in the middle of his ministry because clearly they thought he had lost his mind. You've, you've gone too far with this, Jesus. You're going to get yourself killed. So they go and they, they want to meet with Jesus and word comes in. One of the disciples comes in and says, Jesus, your mom's here and your, your brothers are here. And he looks and he says, who are my mother and my brothers except those who are here and heed my word? Do what I say. You realize there's a moment in their life when something changed and she had to recognize, I no longer need to think of him only as my son, but as my savior, as, as my Lord. There was a separation there. And then she was there, of course, at the cross. You remember this when Jesus looks to John and says, behold, your mother and mother, behold, your son. I don't want to rip this wound open for anybody in this room. Is there anything that pierces the soul of a mother like bearing a son? Mary would have only been in her 40s. You, you get this, right? If she was, in fact, a young teenager when Christ was born. You're talking about a woman in her young 40s. He didn't die in his bed of cancer. He was beaten and pierced and crucified. It says that this child is appointed. He's destined. He's decreed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. That some would receive this redemption. Some would receive this consolation. Some would receive salvation, but many would not. 
The majority would not. For the majority, he would be nothing but a scandal and a stumbling block and a rock of offense. It, they, would, they would find nothing delightful in him, nothing a, a pleasing about him. That many would fall over him, that only few would rise. It says that he would be a sign that is opposed. That truly he would come to his own and his own would receive him not. That they would reject him. And scripture tells us expressly why this is. Because men love the darkness. That this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But men's works are evil and therefore they hide in the darkness. That he's a sign, that, but a sign that's going to be opposed. Does it all of this happens, the, the, the rising and the falling and the opposition and the sword that pierces through the soul of Mother Mary. All of this happens so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed based on this child. You understand that when every single man stands before Christ, it is they who are being judged. I, I, I could not, I found a, I heard, I think, I don't remember if I even read it or I heard it, heard a quote this weekend. For the life of me, I could not go back and find out who said it. So I'm telling you, this is not from me. I got no clue who it's from. But this man was recounting a story about how he had had a visitor. He, he lived in, in uh, New York City or one of these metropolitan areas with all these fancy museums. And he had had a visitor from out of town and he took the visitor from out of town to the fine arts museum and he took the man to see all of these famous paintings and these just wonderful artistic shows. And he gets back to the house and he asks the man, well, what did you think? And the man says, well, I, I really wasn't all that impressed. The man looks at his guest and says, well, don't you understand? That says nothing about the art and everything about you. Every time a man stands before Christ. It is your heart that's being exposed. Your response to him says nothing about him and his worth, and his beauty and his majesty. And it says everything about you. Hearts are being laid bare. Do you understand this? Hearts are being laid bare as you come to Christ. And the question is, well, I seek to leave him in a manger. Everybody's happy to leave Jesus Christ in a manger. And, and I had the revelation this morning. Chuck, you and I were, we were talking as we were fixing, fixing the, the Lord's Supper stuff. And we talked about the phenomenon of people that show up at Christmas and Easter. And if you were in that crowd, I praise God for you. I'm, I'm thankful that you're here. I was thankful for the crowd last night that, that showed up. And I understand Christmas because everybody loves a cute, sweet Non-confrontational baby lying in a manger that demands nothing of you. But why does everyone show up for Easter? And, and it struck me, Chuck, this morning as we're sitting there talking, I'm literally thinking it's because he's the one that's suffering there, not you. Easter's not a story to most about them taking up their cross and following Christ. And so we recognize that the question isn't, will I show up on a Christmas or an Easter service? The question is, will I follow him as Lord? And when he begins to demand that, all of a sudden, my heart gets revealed. It gets laid bare real quick. Do I want a Jesus that stays in a manger? Do I want a Jesus that remains upon a cross? Or do I want a Jesus who is Lord? 
Because the reality is that we don't sit in a position a whole lot differently from Simeon and Anna. Oh, we've seen a whole lot more. We have seen a whole lot more. And the scripture warns us that to the degree to which illumination has been given, to the degree to which we have been given this information, there's going to be greater judgment upon us. So the question isn't what has been revealed to us and what have we seen? The question is, how will we wait? Because we too are awaiting people. Hebrews 9, 28 says that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We too should have a holy dissatisfaction with the things of this world. We too should recognize that the salvation we need is a salvation from sin and darkness and death. We too must come before this Christ and have our heart laid bare. And answer the question, what will I do with him? So that's my challenge to you this Christmas. I told you at the beginning of our Advent series that my deepest desire for us as a faith family is that those who are among us, and I think particularly of children, but certainly of, of, of some grown folks as well, because you can be 89 or excuse me, 84 or 104 and be completely deceived. But my hope would be that we would behold Christ as he really is. And by the working of the Spirit, souls would be saved. And I know this is a hard church to go to as a little kid. It's hard. Right, Carter? It's hard. Sermons are long. I say scary things. Everything's serious all the time. But children, I need you to listen to me. I'm pleading with you. Jesus Christ, the one we worship, the one whose birth we celebrate on Christmas, he has died, he has risen, and he reigns. I'm asking you to turn and believe and trust in him. To follow him all the days of your life as Lord. Lord means boss. You follow him as Lord. Every day of your life that you would repent and turn away from your sin. That you don't trust your flesh. You don't trust your eyes. You don't trust your heart. You trust in him. That you don't try to be a good little boy or girl and try to earn favor with God or with your parents. That you trust in what Jesus has done and only in that. My hope for those of us who have already by the power of the Spirit come to that point. Trusting in Christ Jesus as Lord, whether it's for a day or for a decade. I pray that your faith would be renewed. Would be strengthened. That as we wait for his second coming, as we wait for his return, as we come to this table with the promise that he would meet us here, that your faith would be strengthened. Because I don't know what this next year is going to look like, but I can promise you it will not be absent suffering. So my prayer is that perhaps you have viewed Christ Jesus with fresh eyes, almost as if for the first time this Christmas season. And in him, your hope has been renewed and your faith has been strengthened and you've got greater courage. An absence of fear. As you face whatever comes next. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people.
God, there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff other than this this morning. And there's a lot of people that would show up in a church like this and want something altogether different in a Christmas message. But not these people. You have built them different. You're making them different. And I praise you for that because it is nothing but your work that we can credit it to. So, Father, as we prepare to come to your table now this morning, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. That if there be any disunity amongst this family, any, any division They would do what is necessary to get with that person right now in the moments to come and to make that right. Father, if there's any unrepentant sin, any sin that we're clinging on to and seeking to hide from you, Father, that we would confess it, that we would trust in Christ Jesus and his all-sufficient sacrifice. And Father, that you would be glorified as you continue to bond us together, to give us a spirit of unity and love and hope. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.